Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This Week in Photography is sponsored by Audible. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash twip for a free downloadable book. On this episode of TWIP, Photographer Writes, ISO 12800, and photographer-author Dane Sanders joins us as a guest. All that and more on this episode of This Week in Photography. And we're back for another edition of This Week in Photography, also known as TWIP. We're on... I believe it's episode number 68. You believe we've been doing this for 68 episodes, guys? I, Seems Rod, like just yesterday. Rod, I know you've been on. You and Steve have been on for 68. I had a little uh, hiatus in there where I wasn't on. So I'm, this may be episode 50 for me or something like that. If that yeah, was. Well, we, like started it, yeah, we started in 1982, so I guess that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> Before digital cameras. Uh-oh, wait. Yeah. Hold up, not so much jocularity. You yeah. know, we've been getting a lot of feedback from the Twip listeners that, you know, there's just way too much joy and happiness, you know, amongst the Twippers. So uh, I think we need to be a little bit more, you know, uh, re- Republican not- or Democratic, whichever your flavor <laughs> about it. I'm happy to take on the curmudgeonly role again. All right. Yes. Stop. You, you, either, you always, you know, throw up your hands in disgust and walk <laughs> off the set if you need to. All right. Let's get to the news. There you go. Cool. All right. Let's get to introductions first. Who's that? Who's the curmudgeon in the house and where are you coming from? Hey, it's Ron. Uh it's out, I'm looking out the window and it's raining. Must be Seattle. No, wait. It's Southern California. <laughs> and it's raining. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's just not nice when you expect you're going to escape to the sunshine and you fly into LAX and it's just pissing down rain. But That's a photo opportunity, shooting in inclement weather. I like yeah. that. I, like I that got plenty lot. of that in Seattle. So, Yeah. Well, yes. it speaks to what the next photo contest is going to be too, and I'll just tease it a little bit. It has to do with reflection. But anyway, uh, Lisa Bettany's online. Lisa, where, oh. where, are you, where are you coming from? Vancouver. It is not currently raining. But <laughs> we well, can be, because for you, some later. you have no kind of water apparently, right? Yes, <laughs> you don't yes, have I rain or plumbing. My taps this morning and and no water, so I'm just I'm I've got a pail outside my my window that I'm just going to collect the rainwater and uh, drink that. <laughs> that might make some good coffee. You never know. You never know. <laughs> awesome. And coming from the right coast is Mr. Simon. Hey, Steve. Hey guys, uh, yeah, New York City. It's cold today, but it's going to warm up. So, wow. And me, Frederick Johnson, uh, also on the left coast with Ron Brinkman. But I'm Northern California, and it's raining here as well. It's nasty looking outside. But Steve, you're right. It's, it makes me want to go out there and and shoot stuff. It's like a giant softbox today. Uh, as soon as we take that lens cap off in, in about an hour, we'll we'll do that. Yep. Cool. So I would like to remind the TWIP listeners uh, that we have a new podcast email, and it is twippodcast at gmail.com, where you can send all of your comments, feedback, suggestions, and complaints over late shows and all that good stuff, <laughs> because we were late last week, and, you know, anyway. But anyway, if you, 
technical difficulties. We had we had minor technical difficulties involving carbon-based life forms that uh, <laughs> that stopped the show from going live, and uh, but it did. It went live a little later, so it's uh, it's up there now. So basically, if you you're gonna get TWIP uh, if you're downloading this episode on a Monday, you will have gotten the previous TWIP. You know, just a couple days earlier. So you know, two TWIPs for the price of one. Double your fun. Double your fun. It'll be your fun. And I also want to mention, before we jump into the news, um, we still have our uh, the drobostore.com coupon code, which is TWIP. Uh, when you plug in that coupon code, what do they get, Ron? Is it like 50 bucks off of a Drobo or something like that? Like that? Something that I'm, I'm sure I will have managed to look up by the time we get to the Drobo <laughs> ad section of this uh, show. I'm talking about. Yes, exactly. So Ron, I'm waiting for those two terabyte drives to come down in price. I've seen them for about three hundred bucks. Oh, yeah. yeah listen yeah. to that sentence. Do you, do you know where we were? Like what <laughs> five years ago? You just said I'm, I'm waiting for the two terabyte drives to get below three hundred dollars. I used to be like for <laughs> for five hundred megabytes, it was like two thousand dollars or something. I'm, I'm the same guy that stands in front of my microwave and goes, "Hurry, hurry!" <laughs> you know, I, I just don't have that kind of time. Look at that. Look at Steve Simon pushing the envelope all the time. Um, so let's – while Ron is looking up the uh, the Drobo discount, let's uh, jump into the news. So there, I think there's at least two cannon shooters on the line today. Yay. Uh, at least two. So cannons represented here. And apparently they're offering no charge repairs for 5Ds uh, for the mirror detachment problem. Now – well, Lisa, do you know anything about this problem that the five Ds were having, or, or do you have? Are you shooting with a five D? Oh, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't know about the problem. You're like, good, good on them. <laughs> yeah, I've actually. I, I know a lot of people who are shooting with them, and a couple people have had to return their cameras. And and so far, they've um, the people I know have they've been replaced. So they just had to take the camera in. And then give another one. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's obviously the 5D. This is a 5D we're talking about, not yeah. the Mark II. No, the 5D. And uh, so it's been out for quite a few years now. And I think what I, from what I'm reading about this is the, uh, the glue that holds the mirror in is sort of tends to deteriorate <laughs> over time. And uh, on some of these cameras, some of the older cameras, it's starting to, the mirror is actually starting to detach, which is kind of a frightening thing since that mirror flips up and down at pretty good speeds. And I'd be, you know, concerned that it's going to, I mean, it, that, that's the problem with this is you don't know you have the problem until it happens. And when it does happen, you know, you have this mirror flying around at a few hundred miles an hour inside of your camera body. Mm. I don't know. Yeah. But, what you know, what I don't see anywhere is, is there any kind of proactive thing you can do? Or do you need to occasionally just open up your body and jiggle the mirror and make sure it hasn't gone loose? I don't really know. If I had a 5D with uh, many, many actuations, I, I might just try and, uh, like you say, be proactive and and get the thing uh, sort of re-glued or whatever they do uh, before it happens. And, yeah. you know, once, once they do it, uh, you're going to have, you know, a couple more years of, uh, of good shooting. So that's yeah. a good point, Steve. So do you, do you think as just sort of a matter of routine that photographers that shoot heavily should take their cameras in for a sort of a scheduled maintenance like we do our cars? Yeah, that, there's no question. I mean, I think professionals that put their, their tools through uh, a lot of uh, usage, I mean, you want to make sure. I mean, obviously, you want to have a backup with you all the time. But at the same time, um, you know, I think a lot of professionals have access to the professional service part of, of 
both Canon or Nikon and maybe other manufacturers. And yeah, it, it definitely makes sense to to have a, a tune up, um, you know, once a year if you're going to hang on to your camera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, have you have you tuned your your Nikon's up recently? I do. You know, one of the good things about shooting some big events is that uh, you know, like the political conventions and the inauguration. Uh, Canon and Nikon are are usually there, and they're there with their their great service team, and they uh, very generously, for free, will take in your equipment and uh, and check it out and clean it and all that stuff. So that's that's a real advantage. Yeah, yeah, especially with the D three, the with it doesn't have the internal sensor cleaning, so you probably want to take that in from time to time. But you you like we were talking about on on previous shows, you you all clean your own sensors, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I tend Go ahead. to. I was going to say, I, I have cleaned my sensor before. It's kind of scary. And I'm glad my camera now has the internal cleaning, and I'm hoping I don't have to do it. It is scary. I mean, the thing about cleaning, you obviously, um, I mean, it's the ultimate in, you know, you, you don't want to make things worse. And I will use um, uh, the cleaning devices like the, the rocket to, to blow stuff away sure. mm-hmm. or the visible dust thing but once you get into sort of that wet stuff i've yeah. never i've been afraid to use that and i'm terrified of that stuck on the sensor i'll i'll bring it in i'm terrified of that that just whenever i you know i look into my camera i don't even like switching the lenses on it you know because i don't want to get anything in there but it's like whenever i look in there and i think about maybe i want to clean the mirror or clean the sensor it, it kind of reminds me of you know, like giving your like operating on yourself. <laughs> it's like, you, know, you know, all I need to do is remove this appendix and everything will be good. I can sew me up I, again. You know, you know, you're going to make things worse. <laughs> exactly. Isn't that the case? You just know it. Exactly. I've done that. I mean, that, that I have. I've never cleaned my current camera sensor, but I've cleaned. Actually, I think it was uh, the first time I cleaned a camera sensor was one of the ones we had at work. So it was somebody else's, which is definitely the recommended way to go to perfect your technique. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, do you guys have any any anything that you use that's particularly good? I mean, I've never cleaned my sensors, so I'm kind of a newbie yeah, I mean, at this. And yeah, I mean, what what I had used, I can't remember the brand name. I'll have to look it up. It's uh, but you know, there, there's a few companies that make you know high end brands that include some cleaning fluid and some little swabs that are designed to not scratch. And I mean, it worked fine. The first time I did it, I looked in there after I'd done, and it, you know, I'd left some streaks on the glass, just like when you clean any glass, you know, you mm. sometimes end up streaks left, and I'm like, oh my god, I've ruined it. Fortunately, it wasn't mine. But then I went back and, and cleaned it again, and uh, you know, got it to be okay. So uh, you know, it certainly it wasn't hard. It was just sort of you know, you got to be kind of careful with even strokes across the face of it, and yeah, hope that there's not a little piece of sand or something in the brush that's scraping across that's a whole lot of hoping and and being careful man (laughs) i agree (laughs) yep you know i'd rather just you know if you have two bodies and you can afford to do it you know i'd uh it seems like it seems more economical sanity wise and time wise uh to just take your body into an authorized you know center and have them do it for you with with the right gear and all that you know if, if you're deployed somewhere you know you're steve simon and you're out in the you know the middle of nowhere and you get some dust in there of course you want to be able to clean it but you know, yeah, I, I think it's probably a good idea to at least have a working knowledge of what to do for those times when there isn't a, a, a service area there. You know, regardless if you're somewhere exotic or, or you know, in the forest somewhere and, and you notice something uh, really a problem. So it, it, it's, it's a good idea to be able to um, take care of at least some of the small things. And, you know, the visible dust 
brush that kind of attracts the dust. It really does work. And I think, you know, they started out, they were the first one, and then I think other companies have, have come on to the market, uh, obviously a growing market. But, uh, yeah, I think just a, a little bit of care and maintenance. And the idea, if you have two bodies, to maybe minimize the changing of lenses, which is something that I, I really try mm. and do. Yeah, yeah. And when you change your lenses, uh, the for me, I, someone told me this years ago, is always, it's common sense, of course, but always have your body facing down so that uh, things can't mm. fall in that little cavity that's mm. left when you take the lens off. So, so do you do you carry that as part of your regular gear? Um, oh, I, I do carry it. It's not very big, so um, mm. I will carry it to the place I go. I may not have it in my bag all the time, but it will be not too far away. Mm. So uh, moving on in the news, Steve, a uh, photographer in your – I think he's in your neck of the woods over there. The, uh, the guy that did the, the iconic poster of the Obama image – um, you want to give us some background on that story? Uh, sure. Yeah, I, I kind of uh, saw it. Uh, the 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 artist uh, Shepard Ferry uh, acknowledges that he. I mean, I don't think anybody really knew which picture that iconic uh, poster that he made. Um, and I, I don't have it in front of me, but um, uh, it was it was obviously coming from a specific image of Obama. Uh, there were a few images that were very similar uh, to the um, one that ultimately um, it looks like uh, we found out was the photographer, and that's Manny Garcia, mm -hmm. who was an AP photographer, although now we're finding out that you know, he wasn't necessarily uh, employed by, well, he was employed by AP, but he wasn't a staffer, nor had he signed the um, kind of unfair rights grab that Associated Press makes their photographers uh, sign. So we eight, should, let me let me just yeah interject. please why don't you, you well I, did, you. I just wanted to back up a little bit because we didn't quite explain exactly what the issue was. So everybody's seen the iconic Obama poster, the sort of red and blue poster that was obviously uh, a piece of illustrative art and kind of went viral. It was all over the place. But the artist who made that poster uh, had basically traced. He'll he'll admit this. You know, he used a, a photo as the inspiration for it, and he had sort of traced that photo to come up with the artwork that he did. And now it turns out that that photo was uh, an AP image, or at least something the AP had distributed, and now they are trying to go back to that artist and claim that uh, you know they, they own the rights to this work. And the problem is the artist himself has said that he really didn't make any money off of it. It's kind of just gone out there. There's a lot of other people that are using it, putting it on T-shirts and coffee mugs and whatever and making money on it, but he's not. And then as Steve was just saying, it turns out that there may even be question whether or not the AP really owns the copyright to that photo because uh, it wasn't done by one of their full-time employees. So it's kind of a mess. I mean, the, you know, the, the big issue here is it really seems like the AP is kind of being dicks about the whole thing and trying to extend their reach of ownership far beyond what really should be appropriate. Yeah, And you can see that there's a potential to make a lot of money. Now, the idea that uh, Mr. Ferry didn't make any money, I, I do believe, though, that, you know, his work is selling and, and you know, is available, you know, at, at various galleries. And obviously, it's become, you know, a wonderful thing for him and his career, I'm, I'm assuming. And if he wanted to, I'm sure he could, uh, 
you know, make make posters. But I, I don't have the full story. I don't know what his thoughts are. I did read about the photographer Manny Garcia, who took the image, and he's taking a very kind of generous view in that mm-hmm. he's not asking for, for really anything, even though, you know, it turns out he may actually own the copyright on that image, nor does he seem like he's he's looking for any any cash from it. He's very kind of, you know, flattered by it all. But, uh, and you know, really- it, it, yeah, where, where do you draw? Well, where do you draw that line between somebody who has taken, you know, started with a photo but then made a different piece of artwork out of it? I mean, mm-hmm. that's, I don't know. I mean, what's your take on it, Lisa? Is that really considered stealing something if you make your own piece of art by tracing something else? I, I personally wouldn't. I mean, it's kind of like you're inspiring. I mean, anything could inspire you. So to to create something i mean if you look at the images side by side it, there's a certain influence but it's not like you know he traced the the picture yeah. and it's i think that it's i mean i i personally wouldn't mind i don't know about about you steve cuz you've taken some presidential pictures i mean what would you think if this was you well i mean i think that you know in looking at the two images they they are I mean, they're very, very similar, and uh, I think it's, you know, fair is fair, and I think, you know, there has been a track rec- record of artists, you know, like Andy Warhol appropriating pop culture uh, icons, and, you know, who knows how a picture becomes iconic. I mean, there's all kinds of pictures. There's zillions of pictures of Obama. This isn't necessarily the best image ever taken, but it's the one that was, uh, you know, that that did go go viral. Mm-hmm. I think that if I if I was the owner, being a freelance photographer, and we're all struggling, yeah. I, I, if there's some opportunities, I, I would like to take advantage of them. And I think if you look at the two images, they're they're they are very very close, and I don't think you would necessarily have one without the other. So I, I think there's something to be said about that. And you know, we may not have time to talk about it, but. You know, Richard Prince, whose prints sell for, I believe, almost as much as a million dollars, um, has, has done this kind of thing before. He's an artist who has taken uh, the Marlboro Man campaign by various photographers, including Sam Abel, and has taken and, and really not changed them all that much, yet the art world embraces him and, and rewards him financially in such a, a huge way so uh, so where where does the line like like uh, uh, ron was saying you know where is the line and all this stuff so you look over at other creative industries like music for example you know rappers and and other genres of musician have been sampling other artists work and incorporating it into their own for decades now you know how does that how does that flow into the photography universe when you're doing either a direct derivative work on a shot or a composite where where leg- legally what can you do and what can't you do i don't i don't think it's been resolved in the music world either really has it i mean that that was a source of controversy for a lot of years yeah and you just haven't heard about it much but you know before it was like you know you walk in any club they're sampling left and right and mixing everything together and doing you know mashups and munges and all this stuff but don't yeah. they pay for those samples i don't know they and nowadays, they well depends. You know, if it's a commercially released piece of music, then yes, they generally, if they're doing it legally, are paying for it. But then there's that gray line again of you know what's, you know, what about something that you just released free on the internet? You know, you're mm-hmm. not necessarily making money off of that or doing something in a club. So I don't, you know, there's this huge issue of copyright law that still is very much in mm-hmm. flux, and I think it's the, you know, we we always want nice black and white answers to questions like these and it's kind of time has proven that there just is no such thing and you know a body of law kind of emerges that 
tries to address it, but it's a mess, and it's always going to be a mess. And the bottom line is, it's always going to end up being sort of on a case by case basis. But yeah, I mean, just exactly. to kind of and it depends on if you have money to to defend yourself or to go after someone because it's you know in the end you're like okay there's my image on a billboard and crap I'm trying to pay my rent this month I'll, okay I'll go hire some lawyers <laughs> you know I mean it's what are you you know, do? model releases are another example whereas you know the editorial world does not demand of photographers to provide model releases it's again a gray area and it's been you know shown at times that uh, even something that's published editorially. Um, the person in the picture who did not give their permission may just have a case uh, to sue. So, I mean, it's always better to have permission. But I don't know a lot about uh, Shepard Ferry, but I, I do understand he's a street artist. And, you know, street artists aren't necessarily, you know, they're not business people. They're not lawyers. And, and uh, you know, doing the right thing is defined in different ways by, di- you know, by different people. Of course, you know, strictly by the book or legal um, is one thing, but uh, you know, uh, he 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 truly may believe he did nothing wrong, and you know, in 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 the big picture, really, you know, maybe he didn't because he was uh, inspired by Obama, and he took the image and he made something that ended up inspiring a lot of people. So you know, it's it's it, like like Ron says, it's such a gray area. Yeah, Steve, being a photojournalist, what's yeah, and it's, I'm sure there's an obvious answer to this, but what's the 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 what are the legalities around using photos of public figures taken in a public place for profit or gain? For example, well, the president, you know, taking pictures of the president and then making a million dollars on his image. How can you do that? Yeah. I, I think you can do that um, if, if you're using it in an editorial way. If you're using the image of the president to, to uh, you know, to sell Coke or Pepsi, which they're kind of doing. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, at that highest level, I'm, I'm not sure. There may just be a, a complete public domain. The President of the United States, you can do anything. It's, it's fair comment. But, but generally speaking, uh, most of us have the right to, um, you know, do something about it if our image is used in a way that we're not comfortable with. If it, if it says something that's not true in the caption, if it's used to promote something that we did not give permission to allow our likeness to promote. Uh, the president, you know, I, I don't think he's going to be suing all the, uh, all the people that are using his image. <laughs> he's got bigger fish to fry, right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, speaking of uh, photography and the law, did you guys see that, that uh, video? And Steve, I think you Twittered about this, the Colbert video on the Amtrak photography thing. Did you see that? Yeah. I just saw that for the first time yesterday. Aaron and I were were uh, putting the show notes together, and <laughs> I need to put that on the blog. What do you, what do you guys think oh, about just just they, the way that he did that? See it, Aaron. People have to see this. Yeah, no, it's 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 hilarious. I mean, it, it's the it's the story that we talked about a few weeks ago of uh, Amtrak has a photo contest and then ends up arresting people that are taking pictures for the photo contest because they were taking photos at Amtrak sites the contest was supposed to be happening. Uh, clearly ridiculous, and, and clearly Colbert uh, did an excellent job of kind of calling that out. So yeah, well, we'll put some kind of link on the, in the show notes yeah. so that oh, people yeah. can no, see Nobody this. exposes the absurd like Stephen Colbert can, because he does it in such a serious way. And he, you know, he interviewed, I think it's Todd Mizell of the National Press Photographer. Yeah, he did, yep. Who, who was kind of you know saying he was going to take the case further, but I mean the whole situation is is ridiculous and it's it's completely uh, nailed by uh, by 
Colbert. So it's it's great to see Colbert uh, turn his attention to photography. Yeah, totally. Yeah, he should have uh, Thomas Hawk on the show. Thomas Hawk seems to be. Are you are you guys familiar with Thomas Hawk? He's a sort of a prolific flicker shooter. He was a guest. Guy. He was a guest on Twip. Yes, uh, he was. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, and he, uh, you know, he's sort of planted his flag in. Uh, photographer rights, you know, putting himself out there. And we should have him back on again just to sort of do a, a core sample of where things are, you know, today and from his point of view. I think uh, Scott Bourne sold out his Photographer is Not a Crime t-shirt campaign that he had going. Mm-hmm. Yep. You should make both. You should make photographer photography is not a crime shirts and photography is a crime shirts. So you can get you can get both sides of the market, you know? <laughs> Come on, don't be one sided here. It's marketing. Uh other thing in the news, uh the world's first twelve megapixel camera phone. I know I know Ron Brinkman has been waiting for this device and has probably yeah. got an order in right now, right? I, it is pretty frustrating when you, you know, 12 megapixels is ridiculous for a camera phone if the lens doesn't support it. On the other hand, you know, my little iPhone continues to annoy me with, uh, just give me a little bit more, please. Yeah, yeah obviously, yeah. this is, this is you know, Samsung living back in the worlds of spec uh, spec wars and not concentrating on what's make the, you know, what's it take to make a good picture. So Yeah, they're still caught in the megapixel race. Did you? Did we talk about the uh, that little Fuji film uh, camera that was introduced, though? Uh, no, I don't think no. we did. No, the twelve thousand eight hundred ISO one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is talk this about is, well. This is you know we've talked about this on previous shows where you know finally we think that the world's kind of starting to recognize that uh, it's not about the megapixels; it's about the image that comes out of it, and a lot of times sensitivity is is what we really are looking for. And so they're doing something interesting. I am totally skeptical until I actually get one in my hands or at least see some pictures off of it. But uh, the point of this camera, it's the Fujifilm F200EXR is what they're calling it. It's got a 12-megapixel sensor, but they have some modes that let you uh, go into, basically trade off resolution for sensitivity or or noise reduction. Mm -hmm. So you can go down to uh, 6 megapixels for a lower light kind of thing which would uh, theoretically give you better low noise capabilities and you can even go all the way down to this three megapixel mode where it's got extreme low light sensitivity and that's where they're claiming the 12,800 ISO and uh, you know lower megapixels but they're doing some intelligent stuff they must be doing more than just combining the pixels as they're sampled I think they actually have different types of sensitivity pixels like we talked about a few weeks ago I think uh, Fuji, Fuji has pioneered sort of the low-light compact uh, shooting because, you know, previous to this last generation, Fuji was kind of in the lead in terms of high ISO uh, quality in these pocket cameras like it was the F10 or whatever. I mean, people knew that, you know, their sensor technology was such that you were going to get really good results. So if they're playing around with this, um, I, I think it's probably a, a good bet that uh, – you know, it, it may sort of start to, to, to work as advertised because of, of their track record. Yeah, that, w- that would be the holy grail just to be able to say, you know, it could be because everything is situation dependent. You know, you could say, okay, great, I am in this, this giant hall that's dimly lit and I'm shooting these images to go on a website. So therefore, I don't need, you know, gigantic files, but I really need some more light. So to make, to be able to make that decision, you know, in context is is great and not have to rely on 
you know, not so much rely on knowing how to be a photographer. Okay, well, I need to use a longer exposure. I need to put it on sticks or whatever. But just having that additional tool in your toolbox so that you can shoot for the task at hand would be awesome. Hey, th- th- so what like- would you shoot? Yeah, Sorry, I was gonna say, you, Lisa. Lisa, do you have a point and shoot that you carry around, or do you own? I I do, and yeah, that was my question for everyone: is um, is what what point and shoot they carry, and what do they use it for? For me, I I have the Canon G nine, which I use for video, mm-hmm. as well as um, you know, like I always take pictures behind the scenes, sort of of the setup, and just for me, and just to keep track of that because I do a lot of flash stuff. And so I'll use that for that purpose. And maybe if I'm, you know, if I don't want to take uh, take my SLR somewhere, if it's like going to dinner or something like that, um, I'll bring the G9. But to be honest, like I, I will rarely use it in a situation where, oh, this is a great photo op. Like I won't want to take it with a point and shoot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm waiting for that uh, 12 megapixel phone camera because you know there was a time when you know we had to carry a separate device for our address book and phone and you know obviously with the iPhone things have really come together. But if the iPhone had a serious sensor in it, I mean mm. that would be awesome. I would I would love to have everything you know consolidated in that in that one device. And I I bet you you know in five years from now that's probably be it'll probably look more like that. I'm yeah. guessing. Yeah, I'm for me. I'm using the same camera, Lisa. I'm on a the Canon G9, and I use it for, uh, you know, mainly. You know, I haven't taken on any photo walks or anything like that. Although I could, but I uh, mainly for videos for my blog at frederickvan.com. Mm-hmm. I shoot those because I interviewed you, you know, and I did all that stuff with the G9 specifically, and it's great for that. Um, but I also it is also my kick around camera. So if I'm going somewhere and I don't want to be known as the photographer, you know, with an SLR, I'll just throw that thing over my shoulder and, you know, I can blend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, uh, maybe you guys could speak to it, but uh, Andy, how do I pronounce his, his last name, the Chicago... Oh, Inhatko. Inhatko. Inhatko, yeah. I mean, he did a, a very practical review where basically he talked about, you know, the best camera is the one that you take with you and, and, and that you use and that is easy to use. And, yeah. and, and I think that's a, it's a huge point because, you know, we're all so concerned about, you know, it's a lot of money we're spending. We want to make sure we get the right thing, um, you know, on paper. But the reality is, you know, if you have something that you just like the way it's easy for you to use, it feels good, and so on, you're going to use it more, and ultimately, um, that's the most important thing. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, one megapixel too low, or maybe it's ISO performance is, is not quite as high as the other. If you're going to use it, then then really that's what counts. Yeah, it's like the old joke about photographers that say they only, like, I only shoot with available light, you know, and that means any light I have available, <laughs> You know, so flash or whatever. You know, and it, it's true. You know, even your, you know, Ron, your your iPhone as as you know uh, challenged as the camera in it may be. You know, if that's the only thing you have, then that's the only. Absolutely, yeah. You know, I have. I mean, my my intermediate camera. I consider it the intermediate one in the range of SLR down to iPhone. The one in the middle for me is the is the LX3, and I got it explicitly because it is a very good low-light camera, and that's usually what I want for one of these things. It's still a little bit bulky. I mean, that was exactly what Andy addressed in his, his review on Twip Photo, was, you know, the LX3 is, is a great camera optically, but it's a little bit cumbersome, 
And mm-hmm. I totally agree with that. And I would love to, you know, I'm still contemplating, do I really want a, a small camera that I'm still willing to just put in my pocket always? Because the LX3 doesn't, you can stick it in the back pocket, but, you know, it makes <laughs> sitting down kind of painful. Yes. And, <laughs> but, you know, so, and, and yeah, then there's I've, the whole... The whole idea of, you know, having a small camera, I mean, you know, again, do you use it? I know when I do photography, generally I'm, I'm sort of going out and I have kind of a purpose or an idea. You know, I'm, you know I know, Fred, you do the photo walk or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. You're, you're going out to do photography. Um, how many times, aside from, you know, capturing little visual notes, are you kind of interrupted in your day to grab that LX3 out of your pocket and, and do sort of a serious photo. I hope it's a lot, but I suspect for most people it's it's not very often. No. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You know, so I was talking to um, uh, someone the other day about photography in the house. Some people like, you know, I like to go out on a photo walk with no particular uh, subject in mind, and I'll go out and take pictures and I'll bring them back into Lightroom, process them, and maybe there'll be, it's like panning for gold, you know, maybe there'll be a nugget in there when I shake the this, this sand away. Uh, but she was saying her method for shooting is she never ever does that. She just, you know, whenever she, she'll have a sort of vision in her mind one day and scribble it down and then go out and execute it. You know, I want to go take a landscape of this place. I'm going to bring a tripod. I'm going to shoot on a really low ISO and drag the shutter to make the waves, you know, that kind of thing. And I thought that's a, that's, you know, that's the way you should be thinking about a lot of stuff, but it's in stark contrast to, you know, like you were saying, Steve, about just, you know, are you going to shoot when you, you know, if you carry this thing around, are you going to shoot all the time or is it on purpose? Yeah, and I, I really, I'm a definite believer of sort of going out there on purpose because, you know, when you have an idea of what you're kind of looking for, then you're really going to start to concentrate. And I think, you know, being in that zone of concentration is really important to to kind of get past maybe the more mediocre kinds of things that you might start to shoot and really, uh, you know, get to that next level. But by definition, for you as a photojournalist, none of your stuff can be on purpose, right? I mean, the assignment is on purpose, but you're, you're, you're the hired gun to make sure that you get out there and get the image no matter what they throw at you, right? That is true, but I'm, I'm directed uh, toward a specific, you know, either idea, situation, person. And, and so then I'm just really kind of, you know, thinking and, and blanketing whatever it is that I'm trying to capture yeah. to make sure that I, I work it enough that I, I get something strong from it. And, um, you know, I, I think there's something to be said for, you know, on a photo walk, for example, you know, just sort of staying in one place and just exploring that one place without moving and without talking and just working it. And, and, and I think, you know, sometimes you, you peel the onion and get, get much stronger results. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm actually moving away from that, um, you know, going on a photo walk and just kind of taking pictures of everything to actually, you know, setting up you know, a shoot, like an indoor shoot with with strobes and, and trying to create something rather than just sort of leave it up to chance, mm-hmm. a chance, great image. And, and I find, you know, a mixture of both because it's, it's great to go out and get that, you know, that perfect shot. You know, like, I, I don't know if you've seen the shot with the, with the boy holding the the ball that's that's like a globe and lights coming through and like something like that was just per chance but when um when i really want to sort of create something like it's great to sort of be in control of your environment and 
and create something like that. Yeah. What about you, Ron? What's your what's your preferred method of shooting? Is it roll the dice or stack the deck? <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's an interesting choice. Uh, no, you know, for me, still most of my photography is when I'm traveling. I find it hard to to get out during the week and and force myself to do real photography and you know i try but it doesn't happen all that much uh, so you know there's certainly the case where i'm somewhere else and i'm very much i suppose walking around is exactly what it is but you know in those situations where i do sort of carve out some time i guess i do try and it's more like i'm caught with an idea you know i just finished playing around with some macro photography stuff last week and you kind of get caught with an idea and you just want to sort of figure out what you're going to do i think i really do think lisa's way of Setting yourself a very concrete goal and trying to get a shot is probably the best way to learn, you know, learn, stretch yourself. It's really the best way to do it because you have a goal then and you will kind of force yourself into learning what it takes to get there. Right. It's kind of like um, back in high school when you're in science class having control group A and B and being able to uh, know under controlled circumstances what's happening in this Petri dish versus what's happening in that one. So with photography in the studio or indoor setup environment, you know that your lights were absolutely set at quarter power and your camera was absolutely on ISO 100 and your f-stop was this and your shutter speed. And then you can vary that and, and immediately see the, the changes that happened because you moved one of those parameters and then, you know, have that sort of that feedback loop solidify what's actually happening with light in your brain. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Although you get the same kind of feedback out in the field with digital camera if you care to look at your image review, I suspect. But I mean, it is a whole different way of approaching things when you're creating it yourself versus trying to kind of capture it, you know, in the wild. And the pros, the professionals, I think, you know, part of what makes a pro a pro is having the ability to uh, take anything that is thrown at you and still come up with a jewel or, uh, or in other words, be able to have repeatable results. You know, it's like being a cook. You could throw some stuff together and cook it at a certain temperature and come out with something delicious, but could you do it again? You know? And if the assignment is an orange, you know, you want to squeeze all the juice out of that orange. <laughs> if you have a good orange, then, you know, you'll have better juice, but, you know, the, you just definitely want to, uh, I don't know. Steve yeah. Simon, are you making fun of my analogies? <laughs> no, no. no. <laughs> I'm just keeping with the food analogy. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Stop with the jocularity, people. Come on. Come on. This is a serious show. Come on. Enough. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to the, uh, to the picks of the week. Um, and I've got a really cool one, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait since, you know, uh, mine is so cool. I'm going to wait to the end for mine. And we'll kick it off with Mr. Ron Brinkman, who always has a really good pick. What is it? <laughs> well, mine isn't so much a specific item as it is a feature of a type of item. I thought you were going to say, it's not so much an item as, as much as it is a person. <laughs> <laughs> My, My pick, pick is... <laughs> Go I, I, uh, I mean, we've all got at least one tripod, maybe several tripods. And uh, the thing that I have found that I really love on the tripod I have, which is an older model, but there's newer ones that do this, is the ability to take the center column and put it into sort of a horizontal orientation so you can kind of get off axis on that tripod. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to explain it that well, but it's, um, the, the, the one I have is a Bogan 
like it's you know probably eight years old, so the model number doesn't even mean anything. But basically, instead of that center column being just up and down, you can take it out, um, flip it to a horizontal orientation. It'll lock in, and you can you know sort of get your camera to extend sideways off of the tripod. And if you ever do any type of uh, macro photography, you know, setting up on a on a desk or something like that to do it. Uh, if you're out somewhere outdoors and you want to take a, a close-up of something, even if you've got just sort of a weird angle to try to get in on something, it's just an incredibly handy thing to do. So, I mean, if you just Google, um, you know, Manfrotto, uh, who is the same thing as Bogan, and make a lot of great tripods. I know they have something, I think it's called the Q90 system, which is just marketing BS, but basically the... Uh, the whole point of it is that center column can be reoriented into a horizontal fashion. And the older one that I have, you kind of have to unscrew this piece and, and put it in sideways and rescrew it together. And the new ones, it looks like they have it set up to where you can do this all in kind of one smooth movement and just kind of pull it all the way up to the top, rotate it to 90 degrees, and put it in sideways. Now, Ron, there's a, look- there's a similar tripod head or... Uh, attachment to a tripod, I think it was, that that goes horizontal at the top and you can put the camera on, say, the right side and a laptop on the left side so that you can have tethered, you know, a tethered shooting setup and, you know, the camera sort of off axis. Do they, do they yeah. sell the same thing? Have you seen that? Well, it, it's, it's kind of different and it's a good point. I want to make the distinction that I'm not talking about uh, a head or some sort of attachment that goes on your existing tripod. I'm talking about the tripod itself being set up in a way that, that it can have sort of a horizontal orientation to a piece of it. And, yeah, you can always get these additional things that sort of attach to the head, but I've found this to be a really useful thing. It ends up being very cost-effective because you're not buying a separate piece of gear. Uh, it doesn't make the tripod any any bulkier because of that. And, uh you know, I, I take a look at, uh, I'll just toss out a single model number just so somebody can Google that and kind of move from there. But the Manfrotto 055CX Pro, uh, I think that that Pro designation for Manfrotto is the ones that have this 90-degree rotatable thing. But, you know, when, once you've bought a tripod that has it in there, you, you will be spoiled by it. Excellent. Cool. And uh, I'm pretty spoiled by my $40 tripod. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, look, look at that. See, you know, it, it does. You don't have to spend a lot of money, as Lisa proves, to to get or be, at least be happy with your gear, right? Yeah, I'm you know not. What? You know. not I, I will. I will tell you right now, Lisa, that you know, you once you get yourself an expensive good tripod, you will not believe that you were shooting without one. Well, I mean, I'm I'm aiming for that. <laughs> I'm you're, you're looking in, at that as a goal. <laughs> you're, you're in a good place because a lot of people sneak up on tripods in a really bad way. They're like, "Oh, I'm going to go get one that's you know a little bit better." You know, I, just, I have the forty dollar one. I'm going to go get a ninety dollar one, and then they realize, "Well, this still has got a lot of defects." And then they may go buy a hundred and fifty dollar one, and then eventually they're like, "You know what? I just need to spend the." You know, four hundred dollars it takes to get a good tripod plus head, and it's really just the head where it's at. Yeah. Um, but once you get that, you have it forever. And you know, my advice to a lot of people is, you know, it's a kind of a false economy to spend you know, basically three hundred dollars on intermediate tripods until you get to the one you want. And so, I don't know. It's a it's it sounds like a lot of money when you're saying I'm going to go spend close to four hundred dollars on a tripod, and you know, I could buy an, a new camera for that, but. 
boy, if you're doing anything where you, you find the use of a tripod, it's it's worth having it. Yeah. And amateurize that over 10 years or whatever. I mean, you can have a tripod for a lifetime, really. Yeah, it's that's not, true. Like so many things, it's not going to necessarily uh, be outdated. Yeah. So, Lisa, what it, what is your pick? And please don't say a really cheap tripod. Yes, in fact. I'm picking uh, the Lens Baby Composer, which is the new lens from Lens Baby. And it's been out for a while, but I actually just got it um, maybe about three weeks ago. And I was sort of in, in a rut, and I couldn't, I don't know, I just felt like I wasn't, exploring enough and and trying out new things and and I popped this puppy on and I headed out into the fog and uh and slept on the aperture creative kit ring that, mm-hmm. that actually shapes the bokeh into stars or whatever shape you want yeah and um and I took a really cool shot um from that and and just having it as I just keep it it's such a small lens and it's really easy to just pop in your bag and and you know just like when I'm in a situation where I'm just like okay I've kind of taken all the shots I can with with my 50 or you know, wide angle lens, I just pop this on and it just sort of allows me to be really creative. And you can also take out the, um, the actual optic inside and change it to a plastic optic or a pinhole optic. And, and that's really cool. Cause I, I used to shoot, um, with a Lomo a lot and, you know, it's expensive and really bulky to carry around. And, um, so this allows me to kind of shoot Lomo type looking photos um, on on digital camera. Excellent, very cool. Yeah, yeah I, I recently got one of those and played around with it once, um, but haven't used it again. So I need to. Oh. You know, it's a, it's sort of a deep thing. You know, you need to get out there and just shoot with it and play with the different aperture rings and all that. And I just have not had the time to go out and do that. But I uh, I am committed to doing it before they come out with the next version and then I'll feel bad about mine. <laughs> so, you know how that works. But this one's really cool. It's kind of on a ball and socket. Um, so it's easy to sort of manipulate. And once you find your focus, you can just sort of, um, you know, move, move the, the lens around to get that sort of blurred effect everywhere else in the photo. Excellent. Yeah, I'm a big fan of shallow depth of focus or depth of field, um, which was our uh, our contest this week. We'll get to that after we talk to Mr. Steve Simon about his pick. Steve? Uh, okay, my pick of the week is uh, a website um, that talks about free money for photography, and that is Photography Grants and Awards. I hope I haven't mentioned this before because uh, sometimes I forget what I've said just a little while ago. But <laughs> this, this, this uh, website is photographygrants.blogspot.com. And on it, it lists probably at least 100 that I can see uh, different grants and contests. And some of them are geared uh, for sort of younger photographers and some of them are for professionals, documentary. It's a worldwide thing. Uh, our Twippers will be happy to know those that are not able to enter certain contests uh, if they're not in North America. Uh, and there's, there's, there's all kinds of uh, potential. And it's not easy, let me just say. But 
it, it's uh, the process is a good one because it makes you edit down. Again, we're talking on you know specific projects, but they could be mm-hmm. you know just nature or whatever, uh, or or specific projects. But um, the process of going through and applying for some of these things is is a good one because it it really lets you weed out the weak stuff. And sometimes you have to put together a proposal, which makes you, um, when you write it out, you start to kind of, it gives you clarity as to what you're trying to do with the project. So, photographygrants.blogspot.com. Photography Grants, that's a long URL. It is, it is, but you got it. (laughs) Okay, got it. I'm scribbling notes for the show notes, so when I stick (laughs) this in there. Um, Awesome. And uh, my... My pick of the week, actually, you know, there's, I had one all picked out and I'm watching my Twitter stream here and somebody Twittered one, uh, after I Twittered that we're recording TWIP. Um, and this looks like a really good site. Uh, this person was Jazzy Photo. So you can follow them at, at Jazzy Photo on Twitter. And, uh, the site is called I found your camera.blogspot.com. Mm-hmm. Have you guys heard of that? Yeah. Yeah, it's a site where if you if you lose your camera and you're lucky enough to have your camera found by somebody who, you know, will return it to you, this is where you can, you know, post the pictures from your camera so they can basically, you know, a lost and found. So, hey, there's my uh, there's my girlfriend right there. That person has my camera and I can uh, retrieve my gear. So I think that's a good site, especially for somebody like, say, Alex that loses stuff a lot. <laughs> <laughs> There's probably all kinds of Alex's stuff there. In fact, I just see Alex Lindsay, Alex Lindsay on the side. So, <laughs> so I thought that was a pretty good site. But my uh, my real pick is this cool. You know, I've been on this kick of how do you present your photos? You know, as a as a professional or advanced mm. amateur creative person, you know, we get into this. You know, the tips and techniques and, and you know, uh, theory behind photography and the latest gear. But we don't talk a lot about how how you present it, you know, other than Flickr or Smug Mug or a site like that. How do you get your work in front of people? Because that's ultimately why we take the pictures in the first place. So um, I found actually uh, Amit Gupta, who we uh, had as a guest last week on last week's show, um, sent me over this link to this service called Crop. It's with a K, K-R-O-P. So you can find them at crop.com slash creative database. And what they do is a, it's a free service with no advertising around it, but they make this really slick looking sort of, uh, it's almost like a Facebook page for photographers that's image centric instead of friend centric. In fact, they're, uh, their tagline at the top of their screen I'm reading right now, it says you have enough friends. <laughs> you know, so, you know, it's not about building friends. It's about getting people to see your portfolio. And some of the examples they have on there are just, you know, it's just stunning. And, and they're doing so much with flash now. It's, you know, it just makes no sense not to have a really slick place to display your work to people. You know, this is, if you want to go beyond, you know, the Flickr universe and start actually showing your hero shots as a, in a portfolio kind of experience. But, you know, it's a definitely check it out. Have you guys seen the site before? Yeah, I actually checked around it out last night. Um, and I thought one of the cool things was uh, the addition of a resume. Mm. And it actually it makes a resume just look so nice. And you can actually just download the PDF. So, you know, if you people can print it off and you know I, I tried it out and checked it all out and and it's it looks really good um i think the one the one downside is that 
you can only upload 10 images for free, and then I guess you have to pay. Yeah. I'm not sure how much it is. How much is it for? You know, I'm looking right now, um, but I will know by the time you finish talking and by the time Ron finishes commenting. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead, Ron, while I'm clicking. (laughs) Okay. Well, my thoughts on this. It's loading slow. (laughs) <laughs> it's uh it's nine ninety nine a month for pro by the way oh there it is yeah 10 bucks a month there you go <laughs> that's Hi, my that's thought on this that. <laughs> yeah. that's awesome yeah but that that's uh that's my pick of the week and um but you know i think just the overall takeaway from that is i'm sort of in the mindset of how do you present your work because i'm um working are actually some friends of lisa who uh designed the new lisa com. Uh, showcase for her work are also doing some work for me and you can find them at uh, or at the bottom of Lisa's LisaBetney.com page. They put little links down there where you can click over and find these guys but they're doing some amazing work for me and so my brain is in this sort of place of uh, you know how to present my work. You know this is it's this is my stuff and it's not Flickr. I have complete control over how it looks now. You know so it, I think people should sort of move down the path of thinking about how what's your footprint on the web in terms of what your stuff looks like beyond the Flickr, you know, sort of canned experience. So there's so much you can do these days. There's really no excuse not to have a really good presence up there that showcases your work. Now, Lisa, you're, you're happy with your gallery now. How's that going? Yeah, no, I love it. I love the fact that, you know, they're, they're larger images um, you know, that I can just send people there. It's like sort of a controlled environment. Because on Flickr, I mean, one of the downsides is the fact that, you know, people can tag your photos and they'll, you know, I've turned that off now because it just sort of ruins a picture. Yeah. You get all the comments and, and you know, there's all the, like, pools on the side and sets where people can, you know, they they get distracted from your sort of mainstream. Yeah. You know, you're like, this is my portfolio stream. Don't go anywhere else. But then they kind of wander. And um, I mean, it's great for just sort of exploring. But when you want to say, this is my work. And, and also, like, I've, I've chosen to display my photos on black, which I think personally look better and show off the pictures more. Um, and uh, just, yeah, like you said, having control over the design, having my name up there, having, you know, a link to my blog or being people being able to contact me via a form that I can control. Yeah. Um, cause Flickr mail sometimes gets a bit, <laughs> a bit much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I bet. I don't get much Flickr mail, but I can imagine you might. <laughs> I, I, get a lot, I get a lot of Flickr mail. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. All right, uh, let's move on to the uh, photo assignment real quick before we jump into the interview. Um, the uh, The contest was shallow depth of field, or using wide apertures, or however you want to interpret that. And there was a ton of really good entries in there. I don't know if you guys had a chance to dive through there, but there was some amazing shots in there. Aaron and I were, were looking through there last night, and one that really popped out as sort of, it was impactful, uh, really sort of saturated um, and it made you think a little bit uh, about light in general was this image called Macro Flower, Macro Flower by Pixel State. Pixel State. Have you guys seen the image? We linked to it, linked to it in the wiki. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where you look at it and you're kind of like, what? Well, how do they do that? What <laughs> is that? It's gorgeous. It's, uh, what it ended up being is that there's some sort of a 
foreground object that's, I don't know if it's a piece of a screen door, or I guess it's kind of a fence, you know, something that has fairly large repeated holes inside of it. Yeah. And, and several, you know, fairly small holes, and several of those holes have collected water drops, and those little water drops end up looking like little tiny lenses. And uh, so at first you, you get a, you know, first glance at this is that it's a uh, sort of an abstract thing, and then you realize that you're seeing a flower framed in all these little tiny lenses. It's a, it really is a great photo. Yeah, yeah. I was frustrated I couldn't go in tighter and sort of get a closer look at the actual drop, uh, you know, but the image is gorgeous. Yeah. And just because I'm curious to see, you know, what it looks like uh, closer up. But it's, and, it's, you know, and it, this is one of those things where, this is a perfect example of what I always talk about, where you, you see a photo and it just makes you want to go out and do something similar and explore the, the technique behind it. And this is a perfect one where there's, you know, there's nothing in here that you couldn't find laying around the house and put together yourself to try and get a similar kind of a photo. And I think, you know, this is a great kind of challenge to everybody. You see a photo like this, go out and do something like that. Yep, absolutely. And then the runner-up for the uh, for the Shallow Depth of Field Photo Contest was an image by a gentleman by the name of Craig L. Kirk. And the image is called Pony, which I assume is the name of the subject in this photo. Which is a uh, it's a just a, a very simple photo on a on a stark gray background of a sleeping cat, but you know with I think the 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 plane of focus is right on the cat's uh, eyebrow whisker thingies there, uh, and and everything else is just sort of fuzzy. So it's uh you know I think this one spoke to a the fact that you know I kind of like cats a lot, and so does Aaron, and uh, and b the fact that. Um, you know, this really played to the to the theme of the photo contest, which was shallow depth of field. It doesn't get get much more shallow than that. What'd you guys think of the shot? It's nice. That's yeah. it. Yeah, that's all. It's all, you, it's all you got, curmudgeon. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> yeah, I would be a little more critical of it. Uh, there are a couple of things that I thought. I mean, I I, I love the idea and and all. I, I think it's it's fine. Tear um, tear it apart, Steve. Tear it apart. Even though it's completely out of focus, you know the way it's cropped. On the right side bothers me a little bit. It's a little abrupt that it, I don't think is is helping the image um, very much. You know, maybe it maybe it might work better as a uh, as a as a horizontal, perhaps. I don't know, but um, yeah, that's just my. I, I just thought it was a little bit of an awkward crop on the right side of the frame, and mm. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, that's just you know, this is my opinion. Okay, I think that's good. I'm glad we don't always agree on these things. <laughs> good. I know we need more controversy on here. We need to, you know, start a little fire. <laughs> All, right. All right. So the next photo assignment is like I alluded to at the beginning of the show: reflections. So interpret that how you will, but it's reflections. Hmm. That flower shot definitely could have. Uh, can he enter it again? Yeah, no, he cannot enter it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, shallow depth. Yeah, at least we should start combining these uh, these contests. You know, when we run out of topics, so it'll be reflections and shallow depth of field. You know, and put that together and let people come up with stuff. So just just to reiterate the fact that that people who are outside of the U.S. can't enter these competitions. Um, you know, I'm not sure about that. I don't. Well, this, I don't see not, why not. not Given anything away on these, so no. It's just a yeah. If you have it's access to Flickr, you can. So it's just the it's just the Drobo. So a couple of people have asked me about that. Um, so it's just the the Drobo thing. Right. Well, there's, there's exactly a couple of things. the concept content linking contests that you have. Yes, exactly. Yes. There's there's sort of three things we have going on. There's uh, the Drobo stuff, which we'll talk about in a second. Is 
anybody, I think anybody can use that coupon code. Um, right. And then there is, I don't think we mentioned them yet on the show, and we should. There's a general linking contest, which is an ongoing thing. Um, if you link to twipphoto.com, uh, then you have potential to win a prize, which is usually three of Scott's books and uh, a premium subscri- subscription to lynda.com. And that one, I think, is limited to U.S. Uh, Lewis listeners. And then there's the Aperture Nature Photography Contest, uh, which is the thing that uh, you get to go out and do lots of fun stuff with Scott and Steve and whoever else shows up uh, at national parks. And I don't know about the U.S. No, I it is that U.S. That yeah, okay. US. All right. So that's it. Yep. But the the Drobo stuff, which we should probably just talk about. Well, you're talking now. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you about Drobo. Tell them about Drobo. <laughs> we love Drobo. We love them even if they weren't a sponsor of the show. Mm-hmm. But uh, I got my Drobo. My Drobo is actually turned off right now because uh, I turned it off when we record because it does. Uh, I've got it all loaded up, so it has a little bit of um, air being pulled through it, and you can hear it. But it's just comforting knowing it's sitting right there. Oh. And, That's the sound uh, of your photography. Yeah, well, you know, it's this little uh, little mini RAID array kind of thing, although it's smarter than your typical RAID, where you just shove in a whole bunch of random disk drives you may have laying around. At least that's what I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got four of them in there of all various uh, sizes and flavors, and they just live nicely together, and the smart Drobo brain inside of there takes care of all the the magic of figuring out how to partition stuff and, and spread the files I keep on it across those different drives so that if any one of them happens to explode or I accidentally yank it out or whatever, uh, I don't lose anything. Yeah. And the the, uh, the other cool thing is just recently the two terabyte uh, Western digital drives have hit the market. So, and Drobo, of course, will accept those. So you can, mm. you can grow, you can put, you know, theoretically eight terabytes of, uh, of disks in this thing and have it address them. If you put eight terabytes in there, what, is that, what does that give you in space, Ron? I, I think you end up with about six terabytes of usable space. So it's, uh, you know, the, the, overhead, uh, the overhead of having, having the redundancy in there takes up the rest of that space. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I thought like $300 for a 2 terabyte sort of sounded expensive, but then you kind of realize, you know, the 1 terabytes at a great price are about 100 bucks. Mm-hmm. So it's not that much more for 2, and, and you can fit 8 terabytes in the thing now. And, and we know that you can configure it for 16, so you know, who knows when that will be. Probably not yep. that far in the future. I, but, you know, at that premium of an extra $200 for the additional terabyte, you know, it probably becomes more cost-effective to just buy a second Drobo and load it up with, you know, four additional one terabytes instead. Yeah. Where, where does it end, Ron? You know, how many, <laughs> how many Drobos? You have a wall of Drobos, but I'm sure yes, that's, that's what we want. Yeah. But exactly. Anyway, point being, uh, circling back around, is that we, we do allow, uh, we do give our, our listeners uh, $50 off of the Drobo Firewire 800, which is the latest and greatest model. And that's, you just go to the regular Drobo store, drobostore.com, and use the coupon code TWIP, T-W-I-P, and you get that 50 bucks. Such a deal. Excellent. So, leaving that, what do you, what do you guys, this is a, the, kind of a non-sequitur, but, you know, Steve, you are the only pro photographer right now that, you know, that, that exists solely on your income from photography. Um, when you were getting started in photography, you know, how did, how did you do it? I mean, like cranking your business up, where, where did you go to learn about what you needed to do tax-wise, network-building-wise, all that stuff to, uh, to, to get off the ground? 
That's a good question. I mean, I, I think, you know, I had worked for years as a staff photographer for a newspaper. So, I mean, I had always had kind of a business on the side. And I guess I learned over the years from others that were doing it kind of um, where to look. But um, these days, um, there's a few places I would go. I, I would point uh, our listeners to uh, the editorial photographer's website, which is uh, a real wealth of information, particularly, you know, these days when, you know, things are just so difficult. It's uh, editorialphoto.com. Um, the other guy whose book I really like is uh, John Harrington. He's become a kind of a go-to guy in terms of uh, the business of photography. Um, he wrote a, a book called uh, Best Best business practices for photographers, and uh, there's there's a real wealth of of information as well as on Harrington's site where he will actually um, show the prices that he charges for a variety of different things. So if you want to have an idea of what a, a kind of a seasoned uh, professional will charge for things, and then you can price accordingly, um, those are those are two places that I would I'd probably start. Well, a third place is uh, with our next guest, actually. His name is uh, Dane Sanders, and he's the author of a book called Fast Track Photographer, available at FastTrackPhotographer.com. And he, uh, he basically what Dane has done is he's t- taken a you know, holistic look at the wedding photography industry. And uh, he's basically teaching you how to become a wedding photographer and how to position yourself and how to build your business, how to network, all that stuff, and one sort of concise guide where previously, you know, you'd have to sort of figure that stuff out on your own. So I had, a, had an opportunity to sit down with Dane and uh, have a nice conversation. So let's, uh, let's give that interview a listen now. Okay, so a uh, dear friend of mine, uh, Dane Sanders, uh, afforded me the opportunity to have a conversation with him today. Dane is a is a photographer first and foremost, and a leader in the wedding photography industry. But not only that, he has recently written this great book called Fast Track Photographer that has done what I think no other book has done. Basically, he's taken the uh, the sort of complexities of starting up a wedding photography business, getting into that industry, networking, all that, and sort of wrapped it all into one concise guide on how to avoid the problems that all these other people have mm-hmm. had to deal with over their times getting their careers started. Dane is here with me today. Hey, Dane. Hey, Frederick. Thanks, so, for, thanks for having me here. No, thanks for coming. Uh, so, you know, let's just start off with, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about how you got to where you are. I mean, mm-hmm. It's a pretty colorful story that most wedding photographers don't really have, and you mm-hmm. have some, some pretty interesting things in your past. Let's start with, like, Dane at 16. <laughs> sure. <laughs> to, to Dane of today. How well, did you start? Let me... Let me uh, um, make it one better can how about dane at three and i'll make it really quick is that fair so uh i'm three years old and um my my dad dies in a car wreck and of course that's it was tragic and i have two older brothers and it was a bummer for the three of us to grow up without a dad but uh, it was interesting because it really marked uh me in a number of ways uh one of which was uh and i actually if you go to my site you can see a, a video where this gets articulated a little bit but um it's Iron- com, com. and ironically uh we have i have one single image a two by two inch print of my dad and i together and um it was like i think about two or three weeks before he died and uh, of course as a lot of parents can relate with uh taking pictures of the third kid is a lot harder than taking pictures of the first kid and i, I was mm-hmm. kind of the victim of that no problem but the, you fast forward um a number of years and growing up i just didn't have a lot of pictures of me and my dad and now i have four kids and I'm 
passionate about capturing moments in life with them. And that's where it kind of really began for me was realizing how valuable it is to, to capture memory on film and in an image. And, uh, so, but for most of my adult life, I was just an amateur enthusiast, pretty excited about, about, uh, creating images, but never imagined myself as a true creative. And then I was, uh, pretty late in the game. I was in my early thirties and got invited to, um, start shooting events uh, with a, it's like, it was funny. I was a college professor at a local liberal arts school in Santa Barbara, California. And, um, one of my students was this young, no name photographer named David J. And uh, he's you know, now a very well, very, photographer very well named David photographer. J. <laughs> You're right. And, and real leader in this industry. And it was interesting because we really had this kind of, uh, dual role with each other. I was his, his, uh, teacher in one category and he was very much my teacher in another and as this, you know, early 30-year-old really went after photography, um, I also really wanted to get uh, gear that I couldn't afford, so I had to start charging for things. And mm-hmm. um, it was in the course of that that event of getting to know him, getting into the industry, that some profound things opened up for me. Um, I, if you're open, I, I'd love to share just a little bit of how that... No, how go I would, for it. So we got what, plenty of tape. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened was... Um, uh, I got in the industry, and I, in my own kind of insecurity, I I really thought I had to market myself as a professional, um, as with overstating my abilities. And I remember uh, early on, uh, David was kind enough to uh, give me some referrals. He was about a year and a half in front of me uh, as a professional, and uh, I was grateful for that. And after a while, the referrals stopped coming in, and I was really curious about it. So I just asked him. I said, "You know what?" Are we okay? Is everything all right? And he uh, he said, "Well, the, the reason I'm not doing it is because um, I don't I don't think that the way you're representing yourself to other people is is uh, accurate." And I thought, "Well, what do you mean?" And he he pulled up a, a photo registry where it said I had written, I had actually personally typed the phrase um, Dane Sanders, the premier wedding photographer uh, in Santa Barbara. And if you know anything about Santa Barbara, uh, we're home of Brooks Institute and probably more phenomenal photographers per capita than anywhere in the world. There's a lot of talent down there. And I've been shooting for maybe, you know, three weeks and at that point, and, and it was really indicting and it was, it was a huge gift. Actually, he and I really became friends that day because he was kind enough to indict me. And, uh, then I went on this massive retreat where I really thought, you know what, uh, come hell or high water, my interest is really to be, uh, authentic and integrous with who I am as a photographer, regardless of whether it's sold. Mm -hmm. And, um, to my great surprise, uh, things started falling in line. And not only were bookings lining up and the opportunity to uh, uh, create pretty fun images, but also around events and weddings in particular, but also uh, broadened the spectrum and, and conversation with a lot of other photographers. It turned out that authenticity was winsome for a lot of people, not just uh, new photographers, but established ones. As I got to know them, we became friends. Mm-hmm. And over the course of a number of years, uh, we created some pretty cool video podcasts. Uh, the early days, we called them Simple Photo Minute. And which, which, by the way, is <clears throat> is the number one inspiration for the videos that I do on my blog. Oh, really? Were, your, were the Simple Photo Minute videos that you did with wow. your point-and-shoot camera. That's I remember it. in the beginning. I did. Which is why I use the G9 only to do the videos on my side. Yeah. So thank wow. you very much. For You're that. welcome. That's really that's an affirmation. I love your site. So, um, the, the video, those were fun because it, I think it was one of the very first, uh, certainly wedding photo, but photo related video podcasts that came to be. Yep. And, um, 
that drew a lot of attention. And uh, over the course of a few years from then, we've we've done a lot of uh, multimedia presentations that have not only benefited um, clients, brides and grooms, and uh, people that I shoot for, but also other photographers. And a couple of years ago, I was dreaming about, gosh, what, here I am, this kind of now I'm middle middle 30s, late 30s, and I'm thinking through my life and how does it integrate and wondering if there could be some sort of um, mechanism or vehicle that all these pieces could come together. So I was a teacher, I was a writer, I uh, now I'm a photographer, mm-hmm. and uh, thought, well, maybe I'll try to write a book. And And what I thought would be especially helpful would be to put my reputation on the line. I knew that when I wrote a book, people read books and they sometimes do what people say. And that scared me a little bit in a good way. And I yeah. thought, I, if I'm going to write something, I need to make it pretty... Uh, if on the off chance that people do read it and they do something with it, I have a responsibility to do, to do good work. So I did a lot of homework um, and did a lot of test marketing with established pros who I developed those friendships with over the years and asked them to read it. And mm-hmm. uh, the response was, was very kind. I don't think it was token either. I think all I did really was name what I was learning from all these great people mm-hmm. and, and got to make some self-deprecating stories about my own life that were true. And uh, I just find myself really grateful. The book has uh, taken off. We sold in 36 countries. And um, the, the commentary back is that it's just been a helpful tool for them to, for, for readers to frame out how they're going to engage this craft on a commercial level. Right. And, uh, and to really find their value around not just their output, their photography, but around themselves as artists. We had some, we had some conversations on the show um, on This Week in Photography a couple of weeks ago about wedding photography and how you know it, it is one of those those genres of photography that in this day and age particularly now with the recession going on and all mm-hmm. this that continues to be one of those areas where photographers can make a decent income yes and so your book is sort of targeted at how you know how to get started mm-hmm. in the industry but you started it before and you started writing right at the cusp of the beginning of the recession mm-hmm. how has the message changed since you know the the happy day till sure. you know today with the soup lines. Yeah, that's a good question. Soup lines. <laughs> it's funny. Um, you know, I, I I hope not too much. I think that the conversations around it, like the way that people are attend uh, paying attention to the ideas, mm-hmm. I think that's changed. I think when I first started writing, you're right. It was kind of uh, the end of the golden days where mm-hmm. there the was, sun was setting. The sun was setting. The sun is there now was, gone. That's yeah. right. There was low hanging fruit that a lot of people were grabbing. And, yeah. But people do keep getting married, and they keep getting their picture taken. And I think what's become more clear for the photographer is that they are, they're getting pretty ruthless if they're going to succeed at defining themselves and trying to sort through what it is that they uniquely offer. And beyond just the technique and style of shooting, um, are they creating value for uh, the folks that they're serving? And mm-hmm. I think uh, in the early days when uh, I first started talking about the ideas in the book, and there was a lot of easy work. Um, I think folks just kind of went, oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. And now people seem to be reading it with a greater sense of urgency because it is a, you know, bookings are slowing. It's not that people aren't getting married. They're just being a lot more selective as to who and why they're choosing. Mm-hmm. Who they're it's going a buyer's after. market. It really right? is. And, yeah. and I think it's a great, it's a great, I don't know if this is a popular idea, but my sense is that it's a remarkable time to get involved in this industry. Um, or if you've been in this industry for quite a while, it's a it's an excellent time to refine. I think everyone is in the in a mode of of redefining and remaking themselves, and it's 
going to be better for everyone because of it. Now, you know, you, in my own travels, you know, and mm-hmm. you, you know, you and I, you've kindly consulted with me on me starting my own business and sure, all that. Sure. And one of the emails that sticks out in my mind that you sent me when I was asking for advice was. Uh, 2009 and beyond will become, you know, it, it, it's about the hustle. I think is mm-hmm. the words that you used. Elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, I, I think that um, there was a bit of an elitism that was going on uh, the last couple of years where photographers, especially higher end, um, higher end photographers who were um, getting pretty high dollar uh, day rates uh, for shooting, uh, there was kind of an attitude of, I, uh, elitism where I, I will only shoot under these certain parameters or characteristics. And I think the hustle that season uh, is more of a, we're, we're all going to rethink what we're willing to do and not do. And I know for me, I was willing to um, reconsider in my own, you know, I, I'm still an active shooter. And um, my interest now is to think through, well, are there things that I would do now that I wouldn't have done a couple of years ago to hustle, to grind it out? And I think if photographers aren't willing to, uh, put their nose to the grindstone a little bit in this season, uh, they're going to be left wanting, I think. So well, yeah. so define that a little more. So sure. from a from a high end, you'd be considered one of the upper end, you know, upper echelon photographers that a lot of the the large group of lower echelon photographers are trying to get to. I want to be, you know, charging X amount of dollars sure, per so wedding. For price point, you mean. Right, yeah. yeah. So what does that mean? What does hustling mean for someone at your level and contrast that with what does that mean for someone that's at, say, you know, $2,500 a wedding level? Sure. No, that's a great question, Frederick, because I think there's different answers to both both demographic. I mean, if you're someone who's uh, accustomed to to making, you know, eight to twelve or more thousand dollars for a wedding, for instance, um, there are there are things about your brand if you've reached that point that you need to protect and you need to galvanize and. I would can't suddenly say, hey, here's a 50% off sale yeah, this month that's only. Right. Well, right. it would be problematic to your brand if you right. do that. But what you can do is you can you can add a lot of value to what you would normally charge for that. I think, I think of a lot of great companies that they keep their price points consistent but improve the quality of the products and services that they're offering. And mm-hmm. I think that would be a good strategy for higher-end photographers to to maintain. And Does not, that mean like just, just instead of like – well, for five, for eight grand, you get this beautiful album and two parent albums. But now you get the beautiful album, two parent albums, and an iPod Touch with images <laughs> on it, and sure. all this other stuff. Well, yeah, you might make a little less than the profit margin, but you're protecting your brand. Yeah, and and I think there's there is a demographic. There are people who still have money, and it's yeah. okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you need to have a competitive advantage over other folks who are in that market. And you know, I think there are, there's fewer of those photographers. I think that. The second part of your question, I think, is also very important because photographers who aren't charging very much, let's say they're charging, I don't know, fifteen hundred, two grand, three grand for a wedding. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what hustle means for them is um, not thinking too well of themselves, not putting themselves in this position of, well, I, I will only shoot if X, Y, and Z happen. Mm-hmm. And instead, they're just going to go, no, um, I'm still in this mode of proving myself and, and making a name for myself. And that's why the season is so opportune, because the people who withstand the next five years, who hustle enough and are willing to do, shoot as much as you can, for instance. And I think that's, if you're charging that much, you ought to be, you ought to be shooting, you probably have more time than money, and you ought to be shooting as often as you can. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a, that's a, you're going to do a couple of things if that happens. One, you're going to get a lot of experience, which is a great opportunity. Two, um, not everyone will be able to ha- handle that, that kind of volume and pace. Yeah. Uh, you will get jobs because you'll, you'll find out what 
is valuable to people because people are going to keep hiring. They're just going to be more selective in how they're hiring. Yeah. And as long as you do that, I think this is a, a great learning season. Uh, all the folks that, that make it through a depression, a recession, uh, they tend to do extraordinarily well if they can just make it through. Yeah. And I think that needs to be the mindset. Is it's not going to be like this forever. It's just going to – people are – we're reframing. And, and in fact, it's funny. I was just – this morning I was having conversations with uh, Bambi Cantrell – who's an icon in this industry. And we she was, uh, dreaming about a new framework on how to, how to shoot a wedding. And without going into the details of it, I thought it was brilliant on her part that someone at her level of kind of establishment was mm-hmm. rethinking, gosh, maybe it's a new day for how we even go about shooting a wedding. Yeah. And if we did that, could we scale it and package it and price it in a different way that would be, um, more valuable to the end user. And I think that kind of thinking is very important, very important. And I think there's a lot of folks who are hungry just getting in the industry who might bring a degree of creativity to that mm-hmm. that uh, could really uh, revolutionize our industry. So it, just to sort of to take that to another level. Sure. Um, in your book, you mentioned you know, this concept of the grumpies. Yeah. Right? Yeah, uh, the grumpies. And, and so contrast how or, or describe how you think uh, you know, you look at today, you have the photographers that are out there that are, you know, competent photographers that are doing really good work. And yeah. then you have the high end photographers that are doing really good work. And, you know, so there's that, that whole industry. And then you have, you know, kind of off to the left there, the people that have just purchased a new digital SLR, got mm-hmm. one for Christmas, mm-hmm. and now they're going to hang out their shingle as a wedding photographer. They may be tech savvy, so they know how to put images up on Flickr or SmugMug or something sure. like that. Sure. You know. How do you, if as as someone who's trying to feed their kids with their wedding photography, charging in that three to five thousand dollar range, how do you combat that when a bride comes in and says, "Hey, but uh, my uncle Bob has a new Rebel and he's going to do it for three hundred bucks, and all I have to do is buy him lunch." You know, right? How do they com- combat that, or do they even want to combat that? Yeah, well, it's a great question. the The concept of the grumpies is is really a it's a simple idea. It was just a caricature of a really an attitude that uh, is you can get it's like I actually call it a virus uh, in the book it's the grumpy virus and you can catch the grumpy I think I have that right (laughs) (laughs) I think we all have it some days Uh, but the grumpy virus is something that you can catch whether you're a new photographer or you're an established photographer and um, it's just an an attitude of entitlement and an attitude of um, gosh my value really comes from from the output that I create the, Mm -hmm. the images and I think that's a short-sighted view of real value. I think all the great artists in any genre, um, I've heard this great story about Picasso where somebody got a hold of a napkin that he scribbled on and it became infinitely uh, valuable. Mm-hmm. Why? Not because of the scribbles, but because he scribbled it. And I think that there's um, a real truth to that, that what we, the real value engine in all of us are, are in ourselves. And we have to trust that. That's really a faith act. Mm-hmm. And I think that in these seasons, it, we're testing each other's faith. And grumpies, we have a decision to make. Uh, you know, in a downtime, either you're going to get creative and you're going to hustle and you're going to be positive, or you're going to become a victim and crumble and get grumpy. Mm-hmm. And I think we all, as photographers, have decisions to make. Now, in the case you described, where you know you're established and now you're all of a sudden you're competing with these new school kids that are showing up on the scene with their new cameras. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that there, you need to have a degree of faith that you have some stuff in the tank, that you've done your work, and that that value, you've also probably seen a couple seasons of highs and lows, mm-hmm. and you should trust that. There's no reason to second guess it. The truth is, I'd guess 
these numbers aren't scientific, but my guess is a very high percentage, maybe even 70 or 80% of the folks who get in this industry don't hang much longer than a year or two mm-hmm. because it's, it's, it's an easy industry to get into and a tough industry to maintain in. Yeah. And for the folks who've been established, they should just trust that. Don't, don't worry about those guys, the Uncle Joe's. But, but for that, why is it a tough industry to maintain it? So, you know, you, you, this is Joe Bob, you know, they've sure. got the rebel, right? Right, he's, right? He's been in it for nine months now. He's been shooting. What happens at that nine, ten month point that would say, you know, make him hang up his camera and start shooting landscapes? Well, he's, he's not viable as a business. At yeah. that point, he, what, what he's done is he's, he's monetized a hobby, and, which is great. That's exciting. And there's, there'll always be a demographic of kind of do-it-yourself wedding people who want their wedding shot by those folks, but they're never really happy with the output. And mm-hmm. if they value artistic expression and capturing of moments, it, you get what you pay for. You yeah. know, no problem. But I think um, that, w- given that that will always be the case, that group will always be there, uh, the folks who are trying to engage at that level and just undercut pricing, um, again, the reason I'm not nervous about it is is they're not... Um, eventually they'll wake up and they'll go, okay, I have a decision to make. I'm either going to be a hobbyist and keep doing this where I'm not really making any money. I'm paying money to go shoot people's weddings for 300 bucks, or they're going to start trying to make money. And if they're going to make money, they have to build a viable business. And it's going to be cost of doing business and overhead. And, and they're going to begin to do the good number crunching. Mm-hmm. And when they do that, it'll, it'll kind of settle and standardize. Now, it may be that for the last five or 10 years, wedding prices have inflated and maybe we don't, the market, prices aren't justifiable uh my my bias is that's not so my bias is that uh the photographers who are commanding large sums usually are providing uh remarkable value for what they're offering and it's it's not just a a name and a and a a brand it really is those folks are working hard for their money and providing remarkable value for what people are paying yeah, and uh, you also mentioned something in the in the talk that I had the pleasure of sitting in on last night. You were talking about um, be or uh, I forgot how you put it. And you can correct me. Um, you're selling a photographer, not photography. Yeah, that's right. You I'll elaborate us, on that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's the premise of the book is that we're not in the photography business as wedding photographers. We're in the photographer business, and I think it's a it's a subtle distinction, but it has dramatic implications. Um, and it speaks a little bit to what I was saying a minute ago about. You know, where does your true value come from? If your value comes from uh, your output or your, even your identity, like you come to a cocktail party and you're talking, you're like, hey, what do you do? Uh, that isn't your identity. If you say you're a photographer, it's, or, I, or I make photography. I always say I'm a doctor. <laughs> doctor, doctor, <laughs> doctor. Hey, you know, don't it ask gets, me. It gets the chicks. I get it, Frederick. I get it. No, it's just, you know, you know honestly, though, I, it's, I, maybe it's a California or large city thing. Right. But not to derail a conversation, but, you know, when people say, hey, what do you do? You know, it's like, why are you asking me what I do? <laughs> <You know? laughs> of what relevance could it be to yeah. you? you well, know? yeah, they're looking so for So I'm a doctor. I'm a rocket scientist. That's right. You know? well, what would you like me to be today? Exactly. I'll be whatever you want, honey. Exactly. That's it. That's I'm a stewardess. <laughs> <laughs> no, there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that could be a whole other conversation. <laughs> no. I lost track of where we were. Yeah. No. So you were, you were talking about photography versus Oh, yeah. Okay. So, so photography versus photographer. Um Folks who are in the photography business, the reason that's dangerous is because they, they, they run the risk of becoming a commodity. So, for instance, a wedding photographer, let's say they charge 10 to $25 for a 4 by 6 print, not because of the piece of paper that the print's on, but because mm-hmm. of uh, the creativity of the person who's capturing and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Well, you compare that with a 16-cent print or whatever it is now at Costco or at some other you know, low-budget printmaker, mm-hmm. um, 
even like Costco is so interesting. Uh, I got in a conversation years ago with, with the photo manager at a Costco and they were saying that, that absolutely they are losing money on every piece of paper they sell every print. Um, because they understand that if people come in for at that point it was a 19 cent print they might walk out with a washer and dryer yeah so, it's a loss leader yeah it's yeah. just it absolutely is a commodity no one no one cares mm-hmm. uh, and if if you if you are in the photography business the common person in the like the, the the average consumer they t- they can know the difference between really bad photography and really good photography but very few people have the ability to tell between good and great photography yeah and as a result our uh, consumers are left uh, they're in a tough spot. They have to figure out what, how do I value someone coming and t- shooting an event? And if they're treating it primarily as uh, price is deciding it, so if it's, they charge a lot, they must be really good. And if they're charging a little, they must not be so good. Mm-hmm. Then folks who are price conscious are going to go with market rates. And as market rates drop, as a commodity drops, you're going to be in real trouble. Yeah. So that's why you want to avoid the photography business because you don't want to compete with 16 cent prints. But if you're in the photographer business, then all of a sudden people are hiring you uh, not because you're um, a commodity, but because you are a designer. You are a uh, uh, not a, a f- just a freelance, no-name, generic photographer, but you really have a, a a specific signature brand. And if you are that signature brand and you can build that value and reputation, what you're doing is you're really building trust. And if you're building trust, then all of a sudden people are not just hiring you because of price. They're hiring you because they're, you have developed a reputation that, um, when you buy this, you're buying quality. And if you look in any product or service industry, uh, we all we can think immediately of of products and service offerings that immediately connote value. Mm-hmm. And if the, and every one of them, I would argue, are are designer. So bring that back full circle. Sure. Um, you, you're you're creating a designer sort of boutique brand. You know, mm-hmm. Tiffany's Prada, if you will. Sure. You know, of the wedding photography industry. That's that's the goal to create that entity and. And price yourself like that. Yeah. Um, but then how do you contrast that with in the beginning, you know, you're trying to go into wedding photography and, you know, like you were saying before, you know, you're that $2,000, $3,000 wedding photographer. Can those people create a boutique Prada Gucci type yeah, brand? They sure can. And how do they do that? Well, will they become, in the words of my, my uh, friend, Seth Godin, you become remarkable. Mm-hmm. And, and it's funny, one of my favorite examples of this, and this is, I stole this from Seth, is he talks about a, a company called Little Mismatch. Little Mismatch is a, a sock company mm-hmm. and they make socks for little girls. And, um, what's interesting is sock, socks are commodities. I mean, truly no one cares. People just want to pay the lowest price to get socks. Mm-hmm. Kind of like what they do with prints. And what Little Mismatch did was they said, okay, what could we do to make socks remarkable? And they went out and they made different color socks, like they mismatched them. And by the way, little mismatch is MS dot match, little mismatch, mm-hmm. and, or M-I-S-S rather. And you just Google it. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not a paid endorser, so yeah. you don't need to Google it. Um, <laughs> but what's, what's incredible is they, they now sell their, their socks in packages of three. So you actually have to buy two packages to get three pairs of socks. Yep. And they're, all, they're either the um, same color in different shapes or different shapes in the same color. And... Um, I said the same thing twice. Same color in different shapes or mm-hmm. same shapes in different color. Gotcha. And what's amazing is they've developed a little cult following because, of course, they're, they're just socks still, mm-hmm. but they have a design angle to it and people are remarking about it. Yeah. So photographers who are charging not very much, they need to get creative and they need to think through, okay, I don't need to just copy what everyone else is doing. Mm-hmm. What new approach, what unique perspective can I bring that people would experience it and go, 
wow, mm. that was remarkable. And then give them easy avenues for them to remark about it. And there's so a litany. Everyone knows all the different ways that people can remark now. It's never been easier to be remarked on than it is right now. Yeah, good or bad. Right? Good or bad. They're going to like you or not. And that's mm-hmm. uh, that's what I love about the internet age is. Um, it brings in a possibility of real ethics where yeah. you, we're all going to be known for what we truly are yeah. and our reputations are going to get around. And that's great news for the, for the integrous, authentic, humble person who's willing to hustle and work and get creative because the real creatives will rise to the top and yeah. they're going to get rewarded for it. Well, Dane, thanks a lot for uh, taking the time to chat with me today. Absolutely. What, uh, where can people find your book and where can they find you online? Thank you uh, for asking. Um, they can find out more about me at danesanders.com and the book itself, Fast Track Photographer, is at, surprisingly enough, fasttrackphotographer.com. And uh, there's a lot of great resources. We have a, a new video podcast that's free called askdane.com. Mm-hmm. And um, from there, we have a bunch of really fun um, products and services that I think are really going to help people in this recession season to get coaching, to get mentoring, to get the kind of tangible, under-the-hood help that they might need to really make a difference. And all those details and, and offerings are available if they just check out Fast Track Photographer. But if they really want to keep up with the minute-by-minute minute of what Dane Sanders is doing, they could, how do they follow you? Well, they can follow me on Twitter <laughs> if they wanted. Uh, we've had a lot of conversations about Twitter today. Uh, you can go to uh, twitter.com forward slash Dane Sanders. Yep. And, uh, and, of course, the blog. It's all easily found if you just take a peek. No problem. Cool. All right. Thanks a lot, Dane. Thanks, man. All right, so that was Dane Sanders. Uh, he's uh, again the book that he was referring to is available at FastTrackPhotographer.com, and only for TWIP listeners, um, he's offering a twenty percent off discount. Uh, so just enter the coupon code, you guessed it, TWIP when you check out, and you'll get twenty percent off of that book just because you're listening to this podcast. So uh, I think that's it. So next week we're uh, going to look at, or actually I had a, we're going to interview a person by the name of Rebecca, and I cannot pronounce her last name for the life of me because she's from Iceland, and uh, she'll understand, and you'll understand when you listen to the interview. But uh, we, we see the uh, the way that her name is spelled with characters that don't exist in our language. Exactly. <laughs> I had to buy a new, I had to install new software to get the key the the characters for her last name. But uh, she's a, a very very popular Flickr. If at one point she was the most popular Flickr photographer, and looking at some of her images, she's uh, you know she gets upwards fifty, sixty, seventy thousand views per image, that kind of thing. Uh-huh. So she's uh, she's pretty prolific, and turns out a really really nice person. We had a really great conversation. So you'll you'll hear her, hear about her or hear from her next week. And I think that's going to do it for episode number 68 of This Week in Photography. Um, Ron, if people want to follow you, where should they, where should they head over to? Yeah, if they want to follow me, they can follow me on Twitter, which is uh, I'm just Ron Brinkman, R-O-N-B-R-I-N-K-M-A-N-N. And then my blog is Digital Composting, all one word, digitalcomposting.com. Can they come to your house, Ron, if they want to follow you? <laughs> I knew Steve was – Steve, I knew you were going to do it. I knew it. They really want to I'm follow so me. I'm going to be in New York uh, early next week, and they can follow me whenever I meet up with Steve and then follow him back to his exactly. house. That's only fair. Be careful what fair. you ask for. We have a really large listener base, guys. We do. Uh, Miss Betney, where can people keep up with you? Let's not say follow. <laughs> <laughs> um, on Twitter, you can find me at mostly Lisa, 
And my website is mosalisa.com. And if you want to see my photography, then you can go to lisabettany.com. Excellent. And Mr. Steve Simon. Uh, Twitter slash, or yeah, slash Steve Simon. And I'll promote a couple of workshops that are a little in the future. The yeah. main workshops, I'm going to have a, a digital documentary, seeing a personal project through to book and exhibition workshop, quite a mouthful, in August at the main workshops. And on the Oregon coast, I'm going to do an American photo, pop photo mentor series, June 4th to 7th. So if anyone's interested, come on down. And the weather will be nice by then. Excellent. And people can find me at my blog, which is frederickvan.com, F-R-E-D-E-R-I-C-K, van.com, or on Twitter by the same name, Frederick Van. And that's it. That's another twip. It's done. Um, it's time to put the lens cap, or take the lens cap off. Am I ever going to get that right? It's time to take the lens cap off of the camera. <laughs> I'm changing that. I'm the host now. I'm changing it. Get rid of the damn lens cap. We don't need lens. <laughs> get rid of it and get a lens claw. There you go. <laughs> All right. That's another twist. <laughs> <laughs>